smaller visions last week with uh, the prophet Micaiah and then um, the other one was uh, before that was Moses uh, and a couple of prophets and Aaron uh, going up to uh, and and the 70 elders going up and seeing God uh, from a distance and uh, how there was some parallels with that and the visions of God in other parts of the Old Testament so today we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 6 and this is a much more familiar passage to most people. Uh, and part of the reason is, is that this is often used as sort of a call to missions type passage where uh, the whole uh, scene where God says, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And he says, then here I am, send me, Lord. So that's all. I've heard that preached many, many, many times over the course of my life, uh, just as a call to Christian service and missions and so forth. Uh, we, and we'll talk about that, but we're also going to talk about the vision itself and, and what it means and how it, you know, the implications of it and so forth and the parallels. So let's just read here uh, Isaiah chapter 6. And again, this is a very familiar passage. Would someone read verses 1 through 3? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Okay. All right, so it starts off the year that King Uzziah died. Let's talk about King Uzziah for a second and who this is and how this relates. Um, so Uzziah was uh, one of the later kings of Judah who had uh, ascended to the throne and actually for a lot of his reign he did really well. He was, he was a good king for the most part. Um, he uh, did a lot of good and, and Israel really prospered under him uh, during most of his reign. But he had a very, very bad ending of his life. He uh, ended up um, getting real prideful and uh, decided to go into the uh, temple and uh, try to do the work of a priest to intercede and, and, and so forth and maybe maybe do the sacrifice. I don't remember exact details, but, but he went in and was going to do the work of a priest and the priest confronted him and they said, no, you can't do this. Uh, this, is, this is for the priest to do. And uh, he incurred the wrath of God and was struck with leprosy. And so uh, he ended up, uh, he didn't die right away. He lived a few more years, but ultimately the leprosy took him. And uh, so this was, you know, somebody that did well, but the pride got to him, you know. Uh, he, he began getting, uh, and this is kind of the lesson I would take from that, that kind of what it speaks to me is that he began getting, uh, you know, maybe impatient, you know, to see things doing. And it's to the point where you, okay, well, I'm just going to do it myself. 
So he goes into the temple to, and he ends up taking a role that wasn't his to take. Is it like Saul? What Saul did that time? Um, what what instance are you referring to? Uh, and he got rebuked for it. Saul, Saul, made a sacrifice. To oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, it was another situation like that. And so he, you know, sometimes when you're in leadership, it's easy to get impatient, and you know, think the wheels aren't moving quick enough in the organization. Sometimes, you know, and this is a good lesson for folks in in the work world and in in life. You know, and certainly in, in union and in academia, you know, this is a lesson for us, and I'm sure it is for other places too. For us all, you know, sometimes it's just easy to you get frustrated because things just aren't moving quick enough, and you you start you may you may you know you may start getting critical of the leadership, and you're you're like, well, I could do this better myself, and uh, but sometimes it's not yours to do better. You know, even even if you could do it faster. You know, it may be true that you could do it faster. Well, and it may be the center of it for uh, some of these. It may be pride. Sure, definitely. You know, self-centeredness. Yeah. For sure. Control. Uh-huh. You know, you see a lot of that in, in these politicians and whatnot. Right, so you don't right. Want, you want statesmen. You don't want politicians. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. the difference seems to be Good the luck. real big ego. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't don't. Be. Don't be optimistic. Don't be optimistic. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. I think pride is part of a lot of it, you know. So it just seems like something I've certainly felt at times, you know. It's, man, we're not moving quick enough. It's, you know, and, and it's easy to, and, that, and sometimes that's a valid way to think and a valid observation, but that doesn't mean it's your place to, to take leadership, you know. Well, David, remember, he took the counting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. He was in a hurry too. Right, right. Yeah, it seems to me that any time that you're to take a leadership role in life, that there's usually a definitive moment where that's made clear to you that you're to make a leadership role, and usually with others involved in that moment. You know, like uh, if you're in a job, well, you don't need to do the work of your bosses if you haven't been promoted, you know. You really need to be promoted. Uh, and, um, you know, or you, you may not, maybe a, this is another case that might arise. I've seen in churches where, you know, a, a member might uh, feel that, you know, they, they get frustrated because the pastor's not doing things exactly right and they, they, you know, they decide, well, I could do this a lot better, you know. And, and But, you know, they're not the pastor. You know, this person is the pastor. So, they have not been given that that uh, office. That's a holy office, see, from Scripture. So it's very important that the right person do that. Um, even if the right person is slow, uh, sometimes we have to let God deal with that, you know, and let him bring him along. So just something to think about. Um, so that's something that, that's a problem that King Uzziah died and that bit him, in, had, and that bit him in the end. He, his, that element of pride got him. And, you know, you can imagine there was probably, I would imagine there was some infighting in the government, too. You know, you've got this king, and you've got the priesthood over here, and you can just imagine these two elements, they probably didn't always get along anyway. 
you know, in, in the government of Israel, I would think. You would think there'd be some political issues there. It's kind of like the, in the U.S., the Supreme Court and the executive branch, you know, or the, you know, Congress and the, you know, you've got two elements of leadership in Israelite life. And so there's going to be different people root for this group, different people root for this group. Well, the priests need to do this. Uh, the king needs to rein those priests in. You know, you just kind of hear them in your mind. So, so but King Uzziah died. And um, because he, uh, and, and this would have been a well-known, a big instance and a big thing in the country. You know, everybody knew about this. So this is how Isaiah dates the when he had this vision. Uh, and so people would kind of get a sense of when this happened. So it was the same year that that king died Isaiah states, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. So here we got the same uh, imagery that we had in some of the other visions we've talked about where you've got the Lord sitting on a throne and you see the throne. And uh, the throne is in a high place. Again, you see that consistency across these visions. You see uh, God on a throne, the Lord on a throne, and you see it usually elevated in a high place. Sometimes it happens on a mountain, as in the vision of Exodus when they saw God. Uh, in this case, it's happening high and lifted up. Uh, it doesn't say mountain, but it says high and lifted up. So it's the same idea. It's elevated. And the Lord is sitting on this throne. And in this case, the train of his robe fills the temple. This actually happens in a temple. In a, in a maybe a heavenly temple. Maybe this is the temple of God in heaven or the temple of God in glory. Uh, you know, we, we, we see uh, glory in the end times. We don't know exactly when Uzziah, or excuse me, Isaiah is, if you don't really know exactly what the time frame here is, I, I believe it's real time because he has a conversation with God and, and so forth. But uh, but we don't really know exactly, you know, in time and space where this was, if he was transported to heaven or if this all kind of happened in a vision, you know, even though he is talking to God, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily matter, I don't think. Is there any other comments on that before I move on? Anybody? So we've got God on his throne. And let's, let's talk about some of the other elements. Um, it's a high place like a mountain, but it's in a temple. And then we have in verse 2, we have the seraphim. The seraphim, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and two his feet, and two he flew. So the seraphim, let's talk about that for a minute. The seraphim, if you look in the uh, language, the word study, or the etymology, whatever you want to call it, it means burning ones or even burning serpents, burning uh, being or something like that. So a seraphim then is a burning one. It's associated with fire. Uh, and that's, that's probably what these angels look like, is they're, they're fiery angels. They're fiery beings. Uh, has anybody else done any studies on angels and, and so forth? May have run across that before? Anybody? Okay. Okay. All right. So um, the seraphim are fiery angels, 
And uh, I'll give you another example of them in Scripture. This is this is a little bit. This is one that's not in the throne room, but it's it's an example of uh, of Sarah of these fiery serpents or fiery angels. In November, excuse me, in Numbers twenty one, we read this case, which I know you've all heard of. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people died, and Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the seraphs, or the serpents, from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery seraph, or serpent, and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set him on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the serpent, bronze serpent, and live. Okay. So you mentioned the angels of the fire. Yeah. Hebrews one seven, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers, his ministers of flame. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those are the seraphs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and, and so in this case in Numbers, these are, in my opinion, seraphs that are sent to. Uh, that are sent among the people to do damage. And uh, because the Hebrew language, you know, is also translatable for this word, this seraph, as serpent, you know. And so, uh, you know, I suspect there's times that people read that and, and it's easier to imagine the idea of serpents coming and biting people or causing problems. But I believe it was probably more of an angelic, supernatural kind of thing going on there. Uh, rather than just snakes coming out of the earth and biting people. Doesn't, doesn't the serpent up on the pole represent Jesus taking sin? Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. so the serpent and the garden of Eden, yeah. you know, kind of that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And of course, Satan was a fallen angel, you know. And so it's, it's, it's not inappropriate for him to be in the form of a serpent in the garden, you know, uh, given the Hebrew there and what, you know, that term. So that totally fits. Anybody else have any thoughts? You got any thoughts? And you studied I mean, some of this? I thought for a while. Yeah, well, that, if you got any thoughts, that sure. The, uh, the serpent in the garden was a dragon. I mean, that's always uh-huh. sort of been obvious to me, and I've always thought it was weird. But like an angelic one, would you say? Uh, well, a fiery snake yeah. with legs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely a supernatural being of. From, well, from in the in the in the holy the holy place, there's this pattern in scripture where there's always two angels. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. So when Jesus rises from the dead, there's two angels there. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And there, there the two angels, and then there's an empty space mm-hmm. where Jesus was, and you know his body's not there anymore. That's right. kind of like the mercy seat. It's this empty space. Sure. Between uh-huh. the two angels. Right. right. Well, you have that also in the mercy seat of the tabernacle. There's this in, there's a space with the presence of God, and there's two angels. On the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, yeah. 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 So it stands to reason that that pattern would also exist in the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. You know, you had right. two, there, there are two angels in the story, Yeah. and they're both associated with fire. One of them is a seraph, a dragon, and the other one has a flaming sword. Right, right. Yeah. Good stuff, yeah. Well, as far as dragons go, they're often portrayed with having wings. 
That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, when it comes to uh, spiritual things, it's often that these things are described, these heavenly beings are described in terms by people in Scripture as a little bit anthropomorphic, meaning that they have elements of, of things of this world in them too. You know, you've got the cherub, cherubim, uh, which is another type of angel apparently, you know, that, that's described as four-faced, a four-faced being. And you have the face of a man, you have the face of a ox and a lion. And yeah, yeah. So, well, these are, these are earthly animals. So, you know, you have, um, you have them described that way. You know, you kind of got this little bit of a connection between heaven Chicken and the egg situation? I don't, know. First. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, obviously the angels, pre, I think, were made before man, but, uh, you know, I, I don't, so, I guess some of them could have been made after man, I don't know. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know, yeah. That's I don't think they're spirit, though. What'd you say? I don't think they're corporeal. Yeah, they may not be, yeah, I don't know. Well, I haven't really thought about that, but they're yeah. They're capable of having a physical form, back in the angel in the garden, with a flying sword. Yeah. But I was going to look up at Daniel, there's a, a verse where it says, your parents of a man. Let me find Yeah, okay. Could it be that, I'm just throwing this one out there too, that maybe it's not so much these are uh, earthly beings, but rather eagles and lions and ox have been modeled after could be. heavenly beings. But that's that's what he was bringing up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it could be. Well, then you remember Jesus in his glorified body, he said, touch me. But I mean, it could go through a wall. So, I mean, yeah. Scripture doesn't yeah. teach that. Yeah, don't say oh, that. He doesn't. That's oh, very, that's very confusing. <laughs> he Let me explain it. Sorry. Because Jesus has a real body. I mean, it's a solid body. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm Let saying. Let me finish. So, if you hug Jesus, your arms don't pass through. Right. So, when we teach that He comes through the door, He oozes through the wall. I'm not saying that didn't happen. I don't think it did. But it's very confusing because people, all Protestants, begin to think that. We have a spiritualized resurrection rather than a physical resurrection. Yeah. And that's where we are today in the Protestant church. If you'll check it out, that's where we are. It's a lack of belief in physical resurrection. Okay, it's I don't have that belief, but I, no, appreciate, I'm saying, I appreciate your cautioning me the way No, I'm saying, the, just Protestants in general, I mean, I see it all over the world. And I teach this everywhere because it's a weakness in our theology and our understanding. We do need to be very clear. Yeah, I'm glad you said something. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, don't want to give the wrong impression. Yeah. But no, I definitely believe you have a glorified body body. There you go. Sure, there you go. Show it up. But his body, I'm more cautious. his body does seem not to be uh, uh, yeah. controlled in any way by the creation. This anymore. corruptible body is definitely different in yes. the way it interacts, is what my point was. So yeah, he can move around. Does that make some sense? Yeah. 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 He appeared in the room with them. Yeah. Even though the door was locked. Even though the door was locked, he appeared. But he's a So he's a very, very real hard body. It's a very yeah. real hard that body. That is not controlled in any way by creation anymore. It's a glorified body. A show no glorified body. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> one day we'll have one. And we'll have one like this 
Yeah, that's right. If you'll notice at funerals, I never hear this. I never hear any talk about the resurrection of the body. So it's just something that we're losing. Which is ironic because that's where people need to hear it the most. Yeah. <laughs> I, I never hear it. Yeah. Especially if it's a believer. I never hear right, it. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah. Of course, I've never seen an angel, but I'm reminded of when John, in the book of Revelation, when the angel was speaking to him, right? And he said, "See thou do this not, worship God." It seems that the angels, just like in Isaiah six here, covering their eyes, yes, holy, 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 right. Always worship God. Yeah. But, and I'm probably going to have someone to disagree with. That's all right. But uh, I was reminded in Hebrews, uh, I mean, Matthew, Jesus says, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, and from one end of heaven to the other. So, how amazing he uses angels in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. In the New Testament, sure, and in the future, right, um, right. But yeah. one thing I won't share this experience because it would be lengthy, many years ago. But Hebrews says, "Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for there yeah. some have entertained angels right. unawares." Mm-hmm. And even Hebrews teaches that God sends His angels as a flaming fire. Uh, Greg has mentioned. But I think it is possible that God can put an angel in human form. Oh, sure. I agree. Yeah. That's scriptural. I mean, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, of course, there could be beasts, the eagle, the calf, and different. Yeah. That they sometimes appear as as human. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. Like the three men that appear to Abraham. Yeah. 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 But anyway, they ain't good. Let me read these two verses to you along those lines. Daniel 9 21. Yea, while while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. So it says, even the man Gabriel. Yeah. But look back at Daniel 8 15. Let me read that to you. And it came to pass when I even I Daniel had seen the vision and sought for a meaning. Then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man, mm-hmm. and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, which called and said, "Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision." So it says, "As the appearance of a man." Yeah, yeah. That's two. I mean, that's two chapters away from each other. Yeah. Plus, there's Hebrews and, the, and there's many other verses that talk about angels as spirit. Sure. Yeah. So, to me, it's pretty strong that they're spirit, even if they look like a man. Yeah. That there seems to be some. I, you know, you're. Probably, I'm sure you're right. There's definitely spirits. Even if yeah, they appear yeah. to eat food. Like, yeah. You know, like our point earlier, you know, relative to the glorified. Body, well, would they appear to eat food, or would they actually eat food? Well, that's what I'm saying. Well, I, I just think there's cases where probably you both happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just I just think that that angels are given power by God probably to do a number of things, including eat food, uh, eat food or appear in physical form sometimes. Anyway, what? Go ahead. I think I think it's you know, when we have discussions like this, it's worth 
putting on the table that we are, as a culture, and in our time in history, really at a disadvantage to talk about this stuff. Yeah. Because we're very materialistic. And our notion of how to understand if something's real or not sure. has to do with how tangible it is. Yeah. yeah. Right? That was not a given until very recently in history. Yeah. And um, I agree. Yeah. And so I think I think I think we just have to have a little humility with this stuff to acknowledge that we're not gonna be able to yeah, understand I agree. simply because there's some Westerners. Yeah, there's some mystery here. Yeah, what's yeah, For sure. It's uh encounters with encounters with the spiritual are throughout all of history and all over the world. I mean there there are dragon stories in every single culture yeah. that's ever that I've ever looked at. Sure. Yeah. Every culture has a dragon story. Right. So we all have memories of encounters with these beings. Yeah. But um, yeah. we just don't know how to talk about it. Yeah. English English can't yeah. Well, and what's interesting is a lot of these heavenly visions uh, will, like when you get into Ezekiel and guys like that, all their visions are described as, every time they, they see something they're describing it, they said something that looked like a man or something that had the appearance of this. You know, they never actually come out and say that's what it was. They're just saying that this is... It's the only way I can describe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Limited yeah. vision. Yeah. yeah, to me, to me, the the larger thing in this discussion of angels it comes from that Genesis six sons of God. So many yeah. scholars have said angels got together with women and had children. Yeah, and that the big deal about that, and I think that's false, is that yeah. it takes away from the special place of mankind hmm. in the economy of God. Okay. I, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong. I think Jesus died for man. Yeah, Not I agree. Angels. <laughs> right. No. That, that's the key thing. I think exactly. That is, that is that's the key point. That's the key point. Yeah. That's the only reason I said so much yeah. about the issue. We see, we sure. see spirit. that demons, as fallen angels, want physicality. Yeah. And so they inhabit people because grace is found only in the incarnation. Yeah. The one thing they don't have is the carne. They don't have the meat. Mm-hmm. They're not uh, and, and because yeah. Jesus took on human flesh. Yeah. Yeah. To like, apply grace to human like beings. I didn't count the time. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Well, I'm just going to finish up by saying uh, overall, I would say that we know almost nothing about angels. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and probably that's on purpose. Mm-hmm. The reason being that. They get, John. they get worshipped sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I did sort of a tongue-in-cheek uh, video presentation probably 20 or 30 years ago. It's called, Is There Salvation for the UFO People? And, of course, no and no. I mean, yeah. You know, but anyway. <laughs> we'll have to have you present that again sometime. I'd love it. Um, all right, so let's, uh, let's move on. So that's the – anyway, we got – you're talking about the seraphim, and you know. Now, if you take the Jewish approach, they had a, actually a whole classification of different angel entities and what they did and what they looked like. And you can kind of see this in Scripture if you if we want to try to categorize these things, which I would caution against. But we'll do it based on what we've seen in Scripture. You got the seraphs that seem to be, uh, you know, fire beings, but then you have cherubim, which are not 
the little babies with wings that you see in cherubs, you know, that nothing like that. They were terrifying looking beings that had four faces like we were talking about and, and so forth. And then, uh, you know, then you had these angels. Nobody really knows how to describe that look like wheels that you see in Ezekiel's um, vision. So that's a whole other can of worms. But uh, so there's, there's stuff, you know, the bottom line, there's some, there's some crazy stuff we can't, we can't describe really. And we're never going to understand until we get to glory, I guess. So, um, but this is what, but I think it is something, I think there's something to be said about pointing out that the connection of fire with the seraphs. And the reason I say that is because you see seraphs and that imagery elsewhere in the Bible. You see it in Revelation. You see, uh, you see fire in a lot of cases. You see that Exodus story that I read a while ago. Uh, you see this, this type of thing over and over, and it kind of makes a little more sense uh, to do that, I think, to, to keep things like that in mind. So the elements here in this passage, uh, we've got the seraphs, which they, uh, they two wings they covered their face and to their feet. Why do y'all think they did that? Any any ideas? Somehow the holiness of God is some somehow. I think so. There. I don't yeah. know exactly. But. I don't think they. Well, I, I think they probably are cautious to look upon the glory of God in wow. glory. Probably, you know. Don't know that for sure, but that's that would be my guess. So. Guess it's speculative. Um, in, in, the, in the the feet thing, you know, in, in Middle Eastern culture, yeah. feet are an insult. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And if and if you if you do have to show them, they need to be washed. And so you have the whole foot washing cultural thing that happens. So yeah, that's right. So uh, so there's a connection there. You know, another connection with the New Testament a little bit. So they cover their feet, they cover their eyes, um, and they are above the throne. Uh, or actually, did it say they were above the... Let's see. They're flying. They're flying. Yeah, so it doesn't say they're above. I, I don't know. But anyway. Uh, verse 2 does. Okay, okay. With 2 uh, above. Yeah, there we go. Above him stood the seraphim. So, okay. So then... Uh, uh, so what is... What does uh, Isaiah says here, and he sees this place full of smoke. Again, we've got the smoke or the, or the cloud uh, thing going on here in the presence of God. And that's, that's uh, again, speaks to his mystery and being hidden, you know, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, he sees all these things. He sees God. He, he he's, sees the, the glory here. God uh, on the throne and, and all these things, this, this throne room in this temple, and he's struck with, with um, conviction. And he realizes that, and he says, uh, uh, woe is me. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm a dead man. I'm in a lot of trouble here. <clears throat> I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so he's scared. I think there's genuine fear in him. He thinks this is the end for him. And um, so it's interesting that, let me just throw this out. It's another thing you may or may not have thought of, but there's a lot of, when it comes to uncleanliness, 
there's a connection between that and the Old Testament cleanliness laws. There's a lot in the Old Testament laws about things that you need to ritually take care of, such as, you know, your hands. The priests had to, you know, had very specific instructions on cleaning their hands and so forth. The um, garments had to be cleaned a certain way and things like that. Uh, nowhere in the Old Testament do we see any need to cleanse the lips, uh, a cleansing thing in terms of Old Testament rituals. What this tells me <clears throat> is that Isaiah is realizing that there's more to what happens uh, with a person in terms of making them clean or unclean than just we see in those Old Testament laws. Uh, and this very much speaks to what Jesus taught. Uh, it is what goes into a man and comes out of a man that makes him clean and unclean. I believe it was Jesus that taught that, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, what comes out of a man, what he hears comes in his ears. What comes out is comes out of his lips. And so Jesus is echoing this very teaching in a way, this very thing, that, uh, that the Old Testament laws about clean and unclean pertain to uh, more than just checking the boxes off, you know, and getting the, checking a box off and making sure that this is taken care of. It's, it's about living. It's about how to live your life and, and making your speech clean and, and wholesome and, and good, you know, and speaking the truths of God and so forth and not unclean things. So Isaiah realizes, and that's what he's convicted of here. He's convicted of that issue. And he's a prophet, you see. He's being called as a prophet. And he realizes his speech hasn't been the speech of a prophet. It's been the speech of something else. So the seraphim flies over to him, having in his hand a burning coal taken from the tongs of the altar. And he touches his lips to it. It says in verse 7, he touched my mouth. And the seraph says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And so, you know, the, 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 seraph, the seraph cleanses him in a sense. He's cleansed here and he's forgiven for what, for what uh, you know, he has done. And, and he's being commissioned to do a whole lot more with his lips, you see, to be a prophet. <coughs> And then in verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And there, there you have uh, Isaiah saying, I will be the one to go. And he, he uh, says, Here I am, send me. So, um, <clears throat> Any more thoughts on that before I wrap up with a few other things? Anybody? Uh, well, a couple things Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Something about the lips. Right. Of course, it's going to with James, too. Absolutely, yeah. But it says that this coal comes off of the altar. So it is, that's the place of sacrifice. Yes, so there's good point. there's elements of a sacrifice. In right, right. It's a good point. Yeah. So Isaiah, um, Isaiah 
has a confession that he's made here. He's confessed before Almighty God, and he acknowledged he was lost. He was a lost man. He's acknowledged that his lips are unclean, and he's acknowledged one, one third thing, and that is that he lives among the unclean. He lives among an unclean people. So let's not forget that. That's, that's part of his confession, too. He lives among unclean people. So uh, it's, it's both his speech, it's his life, but it's also you know, the world he's in and he's surrounded by and the, the people he surrounds himself by and, the, and the, the world he's in and so forth. So he acknowledges that we're all in trouble here. You know, we're all in trouble. So we all have unclean lips. You know, when Isaiah says this, you know, that woe is me, mm-hmm. he was probably the holiest man in Israel. <laughs> probably. But, yeah. uh, I mean, mm-hmm. as James says, I mean, nobody's speech is perfect. Right. I mean, right. it's the last frontier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, so let me look at one other thing here to bring out in this passage that, that I want to look at. And that's the, that's the uh, we back up just a little bit here in verse 3, uh, where we have the, the seraphs calling to one another. Notice what they say. One called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is... Um, a repeated refrain in Revelation, or, or very close to it, Revelation four eight, where they say, "Holy, holy, holy, Lord God Almighty." So, there's three holies, and generally, traditionally, that's been interpreted as a Trinitarian invocation, saying, "Holy, holy, holy," and you know, traditionally, that's been interpreted as why that's done that way because there's three members of the Trinity, and I think that's a good interpretation. I like that. Um, I think that's a good thing. Uh, there's, there's a purpose for them saying that beyond just arbitrarily. You know, you don't have a lot of things happen arbitrarily in the presence of God, right? They're saying that for a reason. So, I think there's a hymn that says, "Holy, holy, holy." I think so. God in three persons. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. We've sung that a few times. Yeah. Absolutely. The church fathers were all over that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a very ancient understanding of that. And uh, and the in the traditional piece of liturgy that has come out of that over the centuries, going way back to the early churches. The formal name of it's called the Trisagion. Uh, you uh, hold the three, the thrice holy, or the three holies is what that means. So, and we say it, you know, in our, uh, we say it sometimes, you know, it's said all over, all over the world in the church regularly. Uh, let's see, what else am I forgetting here? Pointed out that we'll see it in Revelation. Oh, and also, let me point one other thing out about that. Notice that. They're not just saying it in God's presence. They are, but they're also saying it to each other. It very clearly says that they call one to another, one call to the other, verse 3. So, you know, there's an interaction of the group here to each other in the presence of God. Um, it's not just, you know, there's a, there's a community of these beings 
unified by the fact that they're in the presence of God and they're, they're, uh, he's holy other and he's holy, holy, holy. And they're all in all back and forth with each other about that. And so I think that's important. Liturgy and worship is something that is, is indeed between us and God, but it's also about God and between us mm-hmm. in the church. Mm-hmm. We also speak to one another about God and marvel mm-hmm. and how holy he is. And that builds us up, each other up mm-hmm. as believers. So that's a great model Amen. for worship, I think. All right, any final thoughts before we close? Anybody? Next week we'll probably tackle start tackling Ezekiel, so that'll be a big that'll be a big Yeah, that'll be a big one. We'll be in that probably a few weeks. Yeah. Thanks. You're dismissed.